0: W N H H L P one hundred three point five FM, New Haven's home for community radio. I'm Mubaraka Ibrahim, and this is Mornings with Mubaraka, where we talk about national issues from a local level through a lens of diversity. I want to welcome you to the show today. It is a beautiful Wednesday morning. I think spring has sprung. I am so excited. I'm not a cold weather person. Every winter, I say, like, why do I live in Connecticut? And then I remember that I get to do awesome things like this with other people like Camille. And I'm like, okay, that's why I live in Connecticut. <laughs> awesome. So today we are talking about black girl magic, people. We are talking about black girl magic. Um, we're, if you have access to the internet anywhere, then you have heard this term before, even if you're not sure what it means. So I even had to look up where it came from. So in 2015, a young woman named Kashawn Thompson created the term to celebrate the beauty and power and resilience of black women. She placed a crosshatch in front of a conjoined word and it just took wings <laughs> and it started to be used everywhere from the regular tweeter and black Twitterverse to uh, celebrities and um, And just the everyday person, you know, we say it even in conversation. It's not just a hashtag, like hashtag Black Girl Magic. Like, oh, am I (laughs) supposed to say a hashtag? (laughs) But if you had to describe what it refers to, Black Girl Magic is a term I would say that illustrates kind of like this universal awesomeness of being a Black woman. Our resilience, our beauty, all of the things that inspire us and we are inspired to do everything that is just really cool about being a black woman. We so often talk about the oppression of being black and the struggles of being black. I think black girl magic really does celebrate the things about being a black woman, particularly in America, and that's the way the term, that's the way that I interpret a term and everybody might interpret it differently. Um, And to talk about that today, so today I thought that we would talk about black girl magic Not just in terms of just a general sense, but really getting a perspective of what it's like being a black woman across the ages. So we're trying to have different age categories to be uh, present. So today we have Camille Scott Majahid. Camille. Kamel Scott Mujahid with us. Kamel is a freedom fighter, community organizer, trainer, and mother of two magical black girls. <laughs> she is the training director at um, CT Core Organize, now a statewide racial justice organization dedicated to building communities of freedom fighters to dismantle systematic racism in the state of Connecticut. Thank you for joining me, Camille. Thank you for having me. And on the phone with us, we have Katora Bryant, who is a healthcare professional, businesswoman, mother and grandmother. Katora, are you there?
1: Have you joined us? I'm here, Mubarak. Awesome. Peace and blessings. Assalamu alaikum. Thank um, you for joining me. <laughs> you are so welcome. It is my honor and I my pleasure. Awesome. So, the first thing
0: that I want, so I'm going to ask you both where describe a little bit about how you where you were, where you're from and when was the first time you realized you were black?
2: Mm. Um,
3: mm. Should I start? OK, sure. <laughs> Go ahead. Um, uh, so I'm from El Paso, Texas, um, which is a um majority um, Mexican community and um, there's a very tiny number of black people there when I was growing up and I think I don't know if I could say the first time I realized I was black. Um, I grew up in a black household So that was always like present in a way But I think the first time I realized like kind of what that meant out in the rest of the world was when I was in I want to say first grade and I was on the playground with a little girl who um, a little white girl who I went to school with. And I um, walked over to go play with her. And she told me that I couldn't play with her because I was black. And I had never been told anything like that before. So I was immediately kind of taken aback. And I knew something wasn't right about it. So I went and I spoke to some other people was like, they, they just told me this. Like, I don't know what that means. And a conversation was had about it. But, you know. I don't know whatever really happened with it. Um, this young woman and I like never really connected after that because <laughs> I just like always had <laughs> uh, felt some type of way about it. <laughs> and, and not only that, but I remember her dad was like a teacher at the school, too. So I was side eyeing him for years, too. I was like, I know <laughs> like, because I'm pretty sure when I got home, the first thing my parents said was that they learned that at home. And I was like. <laughs> Looking at everybody, like, all of a sudden, like, what, what? Because <laughs> I'm like, like I parents, know, huh? <laughs> like, it's your loss not playing with me. But, like, you know, so that was the first time anybody was like, no, you can't come here because you're black. Mm.
0: But, but was your, was that the first discrimination or your first kind of, like, recognition that being black is different than other things?
3: That that was the first time mm-hmm. I personally felt discriminated against. And the first time I realized that, like, there was something different about me and the other kids. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, but I would say like, one of the things that I think about and to speak about generations is that some of the earliest acts of discrimination that really impact us actually happened to our parents, happened to our grandparents. And so there's like this sort of generational thread. So I know now being older, all the things that were happening to my mother at that point that were impacting me, but I was protected from those things as a kid. They weren't explained to me.
0: Mm-hmm. exp mm-hmm. tell us a little bit about, um, When was the first time you realized that you were black?
1: Um, Let's see. I think, uh, you know, I'm originally from Nashville, Tennessee, Mm -hmm. uh, where I was there until I was seven. And for me, um, you know, I lived in a homogeneous African origin community. At that particular time, my grandmother was an entrepreneur. She ran the premier beauty salon in Nashville called Beautyland Beauty Shop that we went to every Saturday with her. Um, and all of the business people that interacted with her were also of color. So it wasn't until um, my, my dad got out of college and um, they came back to get us and that, the children in Nashville, which isn't an uncommon uh, practice in our community that, you know, the you will send people ahead to, to, to lay the groundwork or the foundation of moving forward. And the children may stay with the uh, grandparents and the great-grandparents while that's happening. And it's a, it's a wonderful support network. So my parents uh, came to get us because my dad got a job uh, as an electrical engineer Now, mind you, we're talking 1959. I guess I'm going to date myself. 1959 came to get us. We drive to um, Seattle, Washington. And for the first time in my life, I am now living in an apartment because we lived in a house in Nashville. So we're living in an apartment. That was different. Um, And I went to school in the inner city, uh, Seattle, because we were having this house built in the suburbs. And so I then got exposed to Asian children, um, European origin children. And then, you know, there were other African origin children. So it wasn't really a, a startling thing at that point in time. It didn't really come real until, um, I was in the, Second grade, so I was like eight by this time, and we moved to the suburbs to this new house. And there were there was only one other African American or or anybody else of diversity in this town outside of Seattle. Um, and so I go to school, and uh, my first day of school, I you know get in line. So we all get in line in this uh, uh, very I'll. I'm telling you, trauma really stays with you. So this very tall um, European girl, she had these really like uh, ice blue eyes, and I stood next to her in line to go to to lunch, and she turns and she says, I'm not standing next to this N-word. And I understood what the N-word meant um, just by nature of conversations and being in the cell. And I knew it wasn't good. And so my reaction to her was I commenced to beat her up. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I, 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 you know, first of all, I you because well. I was taken from Nashville. So she just became, you know, the vessel for all of my rage for being mm. taken from mm-hmm. my grandmother. And mm. all of, that was a whole nother layer. Mm-hmm. But I beat her up. And then my mother had to come to school and for all of us on this For the three of us, we know what that means. Mm -hmm. When your mother has to come to school because Mm -hmm. you were were fighting. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And, you know, that was the reality of this little eight-year-old girl having the weight of black people on her shoulders. Mm -hmm. Because my mother, she was real calm in the school when they said, you know, she was fighting and, and this wasn't good. And this girl was very much bigger than I was. And, you know, so my mother, they sent me home. So my mother in the car, she just she was like you know when you get home so you know and then she's like you know they expect you to act like a heathen they expect you to not be smart, um because you're black, mm. well she probably said colored at the time because you know <laughs> black wasn't a thing that you said mm. um, and you gotta understand that when you go back to that school. No matter what people say to you, no matter what people do to you, you will just, you know, you have to understand they expect you to act out Mm. because of your color of your skin.
0: You know, that brings a really interesting question to mind is, do we as black women put up almost a facade in order to not be the stereotype? right? So we try mm-hmm. so hard not to be the angry black woman woman that we mm-hmm. let things pass. Mm-hmm. Do you think
1: mm-hmm. that we do that as a result of that? or? Uh, I think for me, I think that for culturally, it really is a survival tool for you to be silent. And unfortunately for us, our, our, we lose our voice not only in the uh, dominant community i 'm not calling it the majority community because it 's they you know that that they 're not in the majority um, but in the dominant community it 's a matter of survival mm. and then we lose our voice again in our own community with the 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 pain that we are dealing with with our men and with mm. you know um, just you know just carrying that into our own living space. Mm. And, you know, so it's not that we are, you know, everybody's angry. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's that label was not just for, quote, unquote, the angry black woman, but it's the angry black man. It's angry black people. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm sure that we'll get into the situation that we're in now with, you know, this voice around this school violence Mm -hmm. and their young people saying enough of the violence compared to our young people getting out in the street with Black Lives Matter, and it didn't matter. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Why? But what is the difference? One Our d- children are dying. Mm-hmm. What was what was the difference? Mm-hmm. We were considered angry. Mm-hmm. As
2: this
1: this to is, is and it's it's hurt. very
0: it's very um, indicative of the double standard between black and white. So when a white woman is. Uh, excited about something or expresses a strong opinion she 's passionate. but when a black mm-hmm. woman does mm-hmm. it she 's angry and mm-hmm. this is actually exactly. and, and it 's really interesting because when i I was reading an article that kind of like described this as several years ago, and I realized like in my mind that I actually had that bias as well even as a black woman like mm-hmm. you have this idea and then I you know continue continue to read and this particular article was written by um a psychologist and they actually now have det- have um defined a term of anger depression and it oh, is yeah. something that black women have had for a long time and it comes out as anger, but it really is a different form of depression Mm -hmm. um, that we don't recognize.
1: Right. On the clinical side, we know that depression is internalized anger. Mm. So absolutely. So Mm -hmm. that definitely makes sense. Where else do we put it? Where else is it safe to put it, to put our anger and our legitimate rage mm-hmm. this is, you know i think for us as a community we have to validate that mm-hmm. for ourselves and you know i'm going to give a pitch to the community healing network and for it's very interesting that new haven has struggled with developing an emotional emancipation circle
3: mm-hmm.
0: we have
1: struggled with with actually doing that where they seem to be thriving in the south and in in the UK and in other parts of the country and the world, but where it's originated with, with sister Enola aired, we struggle in Connecticut. Why? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah,
2: it's
3: it's interesting being from like the Southwest and having spent some time in the South as well, like the mm-hmm. difference between that region and this part of the country. And I was just actually at a um, black organizer conference. I just got back a couple days ago and that, Co- topic of conversation is constantly on people's minds about regions and how they're different, and how racism shows up in different places. And some of us who were mm-hmm. who spent some time up in the north were talking about, or in Connecticut, we're talking about how in Connecticut there's this sort of smile in your face, stab you in the back kind of racism, <laughs> where it's mm-hmm. you know in certain parts of the country, you know, you know who the racists are. They they will tell you to your face what they think of you. They will tell you to your face what they want and and what they and you know and they will openly display their Confederate flag. They will openly push for policies that are a threat to your existence. And, Mm -hmm. um, and up here there is this, this deep, deep coding of racism. So it's so, it's so under the surface and it's so um, that, that, that the, the, the white people who feel, that they are good and that they are above that have this cover to pretend that certain things are not happening that are happening or certain things are not racist that are racist, mm. right. That to uh-huh. say, Oh, no, well, no, no, that's not racism because we're doing that for this reason. Well, the impact is racist. Mm. So then it, then uh-huh. it's racist. So there's this deep kind of coding of it. That it's not that the racism doesn't exist up here. It's actually just as bad and sometimes worse than it is down worse. South. I mean, if you're looking at where Absolutely. uprisings have happened over the last um, you know few years, which, you know, some of the folks down um, at this, conference we're talking about as well it's you know ferguson missouri it's baltimore maryland it's new york city you know you talk about you know um if you ever talk to carrie ellington who's out here in new haven um you know carrie shows us sometimes this video of the move bombing which happened in philadelphia where um a home uh-huh. was bombed mm-hmm. and you know oh, yeah. a lot of people including children were killed and um this happened uh-huh. in 1985 mm-hmm. so it was not that long ago yeah. And it was, it was a household full right. of black people so there, there there, has been racial terrorism happening in the north. There has been voter suppression. Everything you see down in the south is up here. But they mm-hmm. are much better up here of pretending like it's not happening, of yeah. hiding it under the surface. Whereas in the yeah. south, it's like they don't have as much of an interest in hiding it. And I'm also thinking that like the anti-racist white folks that I see in the south are a little bit more about it sometimes and the anti-racist white folks in the North because it's harder for them to hide from it because mm-hmm. it's everywhere. So I think we, I think one, we have to pay attention to those dynamics and also how they impact our people. Cause it's like a form of uh, what some people will call gaslighting, which is a term a lot of people talk about now mm-hmm. where they, you know, it's about questioning your version of reality. And mm-hmm. I feel like that is much mm-hmm. more, although it's a part of racism all over this country and it's a part of our history, um, that's also up here. It feels like I feel that much more that that sort of gaslighting. Like, are you sure? Mm. But well, this person I know them. They're a good person. Like they would never do this or say that. Mm. And you can. I think also it's important for us to all reckon with the fact that, you know, the way racism works in this country is deeply systematic. It's deeply a part of the culture. You can be a good person and be deeply racist or you can want to be a good person and be deeply racist. A lot of people actually
0: do not understand that concept.
3: Right. Right. I think there's, there's this great poem by this, this poet um, uh, Guante called how to explain white supremacy to a white supremacist. I would recommend everybody watch that YouTube clip. But one of the things that he says is, those teeth sharper when smiling, sharper still when smiling and meaning it. Mm-hmm. And that like sits with okay. me when I heard, I heard that I was like, Connecticut, whoa,
2: <laughs> <laughs> like,
3: that's, that's what it feels like here sometimes. So I feel like that also puts it, puts, it makes it harder for us to heal from racism. It makes it harder for us to communicate with each other as black people, because we end up participating in each other's gaslighting, mm-hmm. especially when the people who are participating in the racism are our friends or our family members, our neighbors, mm-hmm. Um, people that we care about. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, when I hear you talk about that, um, about emotional emancipation circles, that's what I think of too. Is it's it's harder to to get into that space up here to understand like what's really happening and name it clearly.
1: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But I think the other piece thing is that we we have to validate our reality,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and we haven't, we were not given permission, quote unquote, nor have we given ourselves permission to talk about our reality, talk about our, I mean, we don't have to even go back as far as, you know, 1860. Mm -mm. Right. We can talk about pain uh, last year. I mean, Mm. and we have to understand that it's a historical thing. We have to understand that, you know, this is a, this whole thing around quote unquote, I hate, I don't even say it. I say white non-supremacy because when you look at, you know, when you look at it in reality, no, it's not. Mm-hmm. There isn't, We have to understand the words that we're using and constantly putting in our head. Therefore, it's 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 dry, underneath. It's driving behavior. Mm-hmm. If you keep hearing that word, supremacy, supremacy, supremacy. So, what does that say to you mm-hmm. yeah. about your reality?
0: It, it, you're it's, not,
1: there's nothing I always, about I it always is,
0: tell people that you know? anything that we say before it comes out of our mouths, we've, we've already internalized it three times because mm-hmm. you've thought it. Absolutely. You mm-hmm. are physically saying it and there is a spiritual connection to when you physically say a word because your mouth Mm -hmm. is moving to articulate that thing and make it real. And your ears is the closest thing to your mouth. Mm. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. you really haven't before you say it even once, you've already internalized it three times. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to WNHHLP 103.5 FM, New Haven's home for community radio. I'm Mubaraka Ibrahim, and this is mornings with Mubaraka, where we're talking about black girl magic and what it's like being black through the ages. So, I want to put both of y'all kind of like on a spot. And you don't have to give an exact number. But when we talk about generationally, so I am Generation X. I don't mind people knowing I'm 41. Okay. (laughs) Right? So, uh, okay, if I'm Generation X, I'm like at the end of Generation X. Mm. (laughs) Where are you generationally,
3: Camille? (laughs) Um, I'm at the end of millennial, apparently. Or. I think I'm not ex- like it, it depends on who you talk to I'm 33 okay. um, so I've been told I'm a millennial um, I'm in this generation that kind of like when we were young there the internet wasn't really a thing mm-hmm. and then through my like middle school and high school years the internet became a thing got more sophisticated got crazy sophisticated <laughs> and then all <laughs> of a sudden we have these handheld devices so I mm-hmm. kind of like watched all of that happen mm-hmm. whereas like the people in the generation beneath me or like, beneath me behind what Whatever you call it, the younger people, um, like that they have, were like born with this stuff right. in their hands. Born, born <laughs> so, with a cell phone uh-huh. in their hands. So I'm, so I'm of the generation That's that kind there. of like rode
0: that adaptation <laughs> right? as young yeah.
3: people and like have some facility with it, but also not not nearly as advanced as the generations that came after me. So, right. yeah. Hey, so, Katora, where do you fall?
1: I fall as an elder. I am a 65 years old young woman. So I've kind of, uh, I've watched, and I could be both of your mother, <laughs> and maybe even uh, um, Camille's grandmother. Um, <laughs> okay, so, so you... I've seen and experienced, um, all these, I, so I was on the tail end, I was kind of, I wouldn't say I was on the tail end, I was kind of like in the tail end middle of the the last vestiges of the civil rights movement, the mm. Vietnam era. I was, mm. you know, yes. coming out of high school. And I remember giving our, our high school, my graduation address and really putting people's feet to the fire to be responsible, to be responsible to our environment. I mean, I was talking about environment. I was talking about being responsible to your fellow man. I was talking about being responsible, um, you know, economically, mm. all of those things as I was graduating from Lexington High School in Massachusetts, which mm. is like, you know, old molded money community. Mm. Um, <laughs> so, so what is some know, of that? And they, so- you know, there were four black people that actually lived in the town that went to the high school and then they shipped in the rest. So Katora, so, what, what is some mind. of the, what do you
0: think is some of the biggest, um, Perception differences that has happened throughout your lifetime about how people perceive Black women. What is the biggest difference from, say, when you were in high school versus where we are now?
1: Mm. So I was on, like I said, I was at the tail end of Black women finding their, you know, being validated in their voice. Mm. Um, because when you think about you know it was the Black Panther movement you had Angela Davis you had um, people like her that you know um, they were lending voice to the movement Mm. you know all of those kind of women they were lending voice to the movement and I wanted to have a voice to the movement as well Mm. so um, I think that I, I think There's a part of me that says that our voices have quieted. It doesn't have that energy, that passion to it. I think it saddens me to think that there is almost this level of complacency with this generation that we're dealing with in one sense. And then you have, you're always going to have that core that gets it. That mm-hmm. core that will be out there in the forefront of Black Lives Matter, that core that will say to the dominant community, you want us to participate in these women's marches, but you don't want to give us a voice. And you don't support us and you don't back us up for the mm-hmm. issues Talk that are real it. for us and for us to be able to say that. Mm-hmm.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, Camille, so from your generation, what do you think has changed from the time that you were in the high school versus now
3: I think you know I think it kind of comes in waves like I think there was like the you know the generation you're talking about Katara it like there was this movement there there was a lot of visibility of black people and black freedom fighters Um, you know natural hair was in people were wearing their afros like that was like a wave of like black people loving themselves very publicly and openly And I remember when I was younger, um, I grew up in... I I was born in 85, so I, like, caught the tail end of the 80s and was really, like, the 90s and the early 2000s was, like, when I was coming up. And there... And it was a definite departure from that. Like, straight hair was the thing. I had a lot of, like, hair issues myself. Um, I remember... You know, to get back to your other question about like moments when I realized like I was black and I was different. I remember watching movies like Snow White and, you know, just like internalizing a deep self-hatred and growing up in a community where there weren't many black people or black women. Um, You know, for me, that was a hard time. And then when I got um, actually when I was in high school, uh, my senior year, I read Malcolm X. I don't know how I got my hands on that book. I have no (laughs) idea. But somehow I ended up with the book Malcolm X and I read it. And um and it, it changed my life. That was a, like a groundbreaking moment for me, and that was when I started to wear my hair natural and started to like contact that that anger and understand what that was. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the last like you know, ooh, I don't even know, like maybe the last ten years, there has been a resurgence of this like movement for like black lives mm-hmm. and for black mm-hmm. self love and for black healing and for natural hair and, and a and a connection mm-hmm. to the motherland. So I'm seeing like a resurgence of that. So I think it's like it comes in waves mm-hmm. and that wave and can down. roll back. Um and so I mm-hmm. think that's another thing for us to be paying attention to for our daughters and our granddaughters. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, how do we hold on to this either as a community or at least within our own families so that we can remind our kids because it's those people who carried that thread down i think this is a key part of black girl magic too it's those people that carry that thread down and carry those messages Mm -hmm. down who make sure that that resurgence happens that that Mm -hmm. that that wave Mm -hmm. comes back after after whatever happens and it dissipates but you know in the 90s and you know you saw like there were some there were some like black television shows but they you know they definitely had like sort of kind of feel to it that was um You know, um, like I love I love a lot of those shows. And there was like some mocking of our people and our culture involved in that. That was like if you're allowed to make a black, excuse me, a black cultural product, there has to be some kind of devaluation of black blackness Mm. within it. Mm. Um, And now we're starting to see like, you know, I think we're starting to see black cultural offerings on a mainstream stage like we haven't seen it before. Mm. Um, And, you know, Black Panther is a great example of that, the way the black. Women were portrayed in Black Panther was amazing, um, and and there's a questioning of, um, you know, gender roles. There's a questioning of toxic masculinity. There's a questioning of gender in general that I think is really healthy and beautiful. Um, mm-hmm. That's coming up through this like younger generation as well. Um, and so I think we're in a really we're in a good place. And yeah, there's always people who don't get it, and and I and I think we experience that sometimes intergenerationally and sometimes not. Um, and I think it's just important, like for me to like look to um, find people in all generations who get it, because I think that intergenerational thread is like where the best like wisdom and knowledge will come from. So
0: you know the interesting the interesting uh, transition that I that I p- have paid attention to is that we know as a demographic now. You know I think it was first was released like last in 2016. Oh gosh, it's 2018 already. (laughs) Um, That black women are the most educated demographic Mm -hmm. uh, in America. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I think that that has some contributing factor to, um, Katora talked a little bit about the complacency. I think for a long time, just black women, let's just, just, I think black people in general, but black women in particular is we had this kind of like, put our head down. Let's prove that we're intelligent. Let's prove that we can contribute. Mm -hmm. And now we are to a point where there's this realization. It doesn't matter how many letters you have behind your Mm -hmm. name. You are never going to convince them that you are as good as they are because that is the mentality. So I think that that contributes kind of like to this wave. The complacency happened when we thought we could approach it in Mm -hmm. a different way. Mm -hmm. Let's prove Mm -hmm. that we are smart and intelligent and we can do the job. And then we realize you got to do twice as much as work. And then and after still, you finish you're never doing twice get. as much of the work, we're going to move the finish line. Right, right. <laughs> so yeah. I think that that is a part. I think we're now at this awakening point where we are realizing that it is not the work. It is not the academic success. It is not the letters behind mm-hmm. your name or, or how high you
3: wear your pants or how you speak. Or,
0: <laughs> or what texture right. your hair is mm-hmm. being right. used. Right. That you there is a, the underlining bias and racism is what has to be approached because it was almost like we're trying to bandage we kept trying to bandage the wound mm-hmm. but it was infected mm-hmm. and we never got there we've uh-huh. never used an antibody
2: right <laughs> so right. we're just
0: putting this bandage on it let's put uh, let's put a, a master's on top of it let's put a phd on top of it
2: right
0: and it's right. like but the wound is still infected people <laughs> and I think that we're yeah, just exactly. getting to that point where we're like mm-hmm Okay, and I and even through it, from my view, even through all of the progressions that happened during civil rights, they were still bandages, mm-hmm. right? We thought that okay, if we you know can ride a bus too and sit where we want, then that's going to help, right?
1: It, it's, it was still a bandage, right? right?
3: <laughs> and and I think it's it's telling that when I think the movement moved to another.
1: The, s- it, 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 if we understand truly the underlying thing with integration, it wasn't really that those that were dealing in the movement weren't so enamored with integration, Mm. but the reality that segregation was, you know, wasn't working because at first it was like, okay, we're okay with having our being separate if we can be equal. Mm. But see when they said, oh yeah, yeah, sure, sure. Then when they realized that, okay, well, when it came time for books, how come these books are 10 years old and half the pages move mm-hmm. missing? Mm-hmm. So then people came to understand, okay, well, this isn't working because we're not getting our full fair share. We're paying taxes, doing whatever. So then the issue of, well, maybe if we could integrate the system, then there could be more parity. But then what that it just put all of that, that, didn't
2: that, work that
1: covert <laughs> over racism yeah. into this, right. as you Camille talked into that whole covert space Mm -hmm. and so that now you know so now people equally as frustrated and there's there's that movement now that's saying i'm okay with i want to be in my own neighborhood with my own folks and with my own culture with my Mm -hmm. own food and there's nothing wrong with that for anybody Mm -hmm. but the, the the bottom line is you have to then respect the person and there that lives on the next street. Right. Mm, right. You right. can't be doing things. You can't plow your street with my taxpaying dollars and tell me that, you know, that's OK, mm. because that's not OK. Right.
0: Mm. Um, so let's let's flip um, on the reverse um, a little bit. When was the first time we talk about first memories again, that you felt a true pride Mm -hmm. and celebration of being a black woman and recognize that that was a unique experience for you? This wasn't just about being a woman. Mm -hmm. It was about being a black woman in particular.
1: Mm -hmm.
0: You want to go first,
1: uh, Katara? Sure. I think for me, it was uh, my junior year in high school. I mean, because, you know, high school felt, it felt like, you know, it was a forever. But <laughs> I was a junior in high school, and I had, um, you know, done what I had to do with my straightened hair. Because I, I, I never really got put a lot of chemicals in my hair. I always had natural hair. So, but it was straightened. And so I had, you know, bust the color line on the cheerleading squad at Lexington High School. Mm-hmm first black cheerleader for Lexington High School. And I my hair was straightened. And I knew that once I got on that team, the next day, I was going to go get my first Afro. At, it was going to be cut at Harambe <laughs> in Boston. And so when I came back in the fall, I had this big, huge fro. Yes. They were clutching <laughs> their pearls. And I just walked in there. It was like, yes, I am here. And I'm here to stay. And then we went into this whole thing of we petitioned and sat in and made them have a African American history class. I mean, I was a rebel. And I loved the rebelness in me, but then there was that conservative part of me. I wasn't stupid. Mm. There was that conservative part of me that was like, Okay, I know I gotta get through these classes and I know I gotta graduate. And I got to graduate with a certain GPA, blah, 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 because, you know, my mother still had that message in my head. Mm. You got to be, you know, you got to excel. You can't be dumb Mm -hmm.
2: because
1: they're expecting you to be dumb. So i was still working off of that message. But I just got enlightened. I was running to Cambridge Square and participated in these protests, sneaking into town and (laughs) putting my fist up. I was all in. Mm. (laughs) (laughs) What about you, Camille?
3: Yeah I was trying to think about it. I think it was like a really a journey for me, like starting with somehow finding that book and reading it, uh, the autobiography of Malcolm X and I initially I cut off all my hair. I had a chemical straightener so I cut off all my hair and let it go natural. But for a long time I hot combed it cuz <clears throat> I didn't I wasn't there yet. Like I wasn't comfortable. I saw I remember the first time I saw myself with my natural hair and I just like it was just like devastating. I was like Ouch, you know and and i couldn't see beauty in that image at that point um and i think part of it was also just like i didn't grow up around a lot of black people so i didn't see that like i never saw that you know you don't see it on tv i didn't see it in school i didn't see it anywhere And hair was a big deal. You know, all the women, the girls that I went to school with had beautiful hair. It was always curly and beautiful and perfect. And I was just like, I just don't know what I'm doing here. (laughs) So I straightened it for a while. And then um, I went off to college. And um, when I got to college, I came to New Haven. And, you know, there's a fair amount of black people here. (laughs) So I started to make connections (laughs) at the at the university and some other places. And um, Yale um, was a really kind of radicalizing experience for me, to be honest. Like I had grown up really poor And um, that was what it was. But to contrast that with this wealth and privilege and power and ignorance, like deep, deep ignorance, like and Mm -hmm. um, was just like a, a, a switch for me. And so I think that also contributed to me feeling like actually these experiences that I've had as a black woman and also as a as a poor black woman. Um, have have taught me things that these people have not learned. Like they, like I understand okay. a lot about this country that these people don't understand and want to understand. Mm-hmm. And so um, so I got. I mean, I think it was a combination of anger and pride. <laughs> so um, but <laughs> yes. I definitely felt proud of who I was. I felt proud of what I knew. And and it kind of like rooted me in a self assuredness that like I'm not going to let these people tell me who I am. I know who I am, and mm-hmm. I can see them, mm-hmm. and I can see what they're okay. doing. So I'm going to stand up. And I'm and I you know I I actually like went the other way with it. I I stopped a hot comb in my hair I let my fro come out and little by little I started to like love that image of myself um if you can mm-hmm. see me now you can see I've got I've got my fro again I actually went and had locks for a while and I cut those off and I'll probably be back again so I've been experimenting with my hair but like there's so much in my hair that was so important to me in terms of understanding and loving myself and being able to love that image of myself with my afro was like a was a huge turning point for me personally Um, But also just building more relationships with other Black folk, even even when they were like, "Where are you coming from? Why do you talk like that?" And like you know, like why don't why haven't you seen this movie? Or why don't you know how to play spades? You know, there's certain cultural (laughs) touchstones that you miss when you don't grow up in a Black Uh community. But you know, at the same time, like people, why you don't know how to play spades? Right, spades is important. (laughs) is so important. I'm working on that. Withology. I hope my black people will have some grace with me. I'm working on that. Um, but now it's like, you know, I want, I, you know, it was like, I, I when I saw blackness, I don't know, for some reason, I always wanted to kind of like rush towards it. Cause it was like something that I just felt like that was my home. Mm-hmm. But, um, I've had a complicated relationship with it too, because not always being welcomed in, or not always like knowing how to how to access mm-hmm. that. Being from other places, mm-hmm. being you know light skin, like all this other stuff, which you know is like we could talk about light skin privilege all day, because we, and we should. Um, <laughs> so, and I think that also comes up. Mm-hmm. I just want to name that as something that comes up. In anger, because I have been someone who has embraced my anger and has like put that into my work and into my public persona as well. And I think part of the reason why there's some acceptance of that is because of my skin tone, like that that has given me some cover. Which is also why I lean further into it because I'm like, so it's you're not, not as always you're not
0: always angry angry because you're light. You're sometimes passionate. yeah right like yeah no but that's real like that's really real like
3: people do not i see i see the other women around me who are doing the same thing i'm doing or like not not even like coming out as much as I'm like, coming She's out so
0: angry Camille
3: can you talk? right to the minute they they want to shut that down or they want to <laughs> come to me yeah and be like can yeah. you can you and I'm like no no <laughs> or like when when someone hires me I'm like you're not done like just because you hired me and I'm the first black person you hired like this doesn't <laughs> count like I'm like it counts but it yeah. doesn't count like you need to go out there and like really like work on yourself like but people like I, I have been put in that position a lot and I and I have professionally benefited from that so I think it's important to call it out as well because it's not it's it's not yeah. fair and there are so many women who have not had access to that my sisters and so I'm like I want to call that out I don't know if that's enough I know it actually is not enough um, but the least I can do is just be like, hey, I have benefited from this personally and mm-hmm. and not through my own like doing. But it's important to name it and to not say there's something so exceptional about me that allows me to occupy this space. Mm-hmm. It's not it's mm-hmm. as, it's as basic as the color of my skin. Mm-hmm. And that's just and people mm-hmm. need to stop. So <laughs> I'm just gonna I'm just going to like leave that there. I just but. like to just to,
0: <laughs> just, just to put in there that I, even though. Black Panther might give us a little us dark skinned people a little, little um <laughs>
2: Don't we, it. So go.
0: we got a lot what of chocolate in Black Panther it may have turned yes. I think Black, dark skin is in now I hope
3: so yeah. <laughs> it should have always been in but I
1: mean I, I just think that um
3: I also want to talk about black girl magic and melanin and, and like how black women <laughs> yes, do not age. I'm looking, I'm looking at you and Katura telling me how old you are. And I'm like, you see,
1: <laughs> it's also that's part of our healing that mm-hmm. we have to go through. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I'm trying to think of the psychologist. She's at Yale and she's a friend and I, I can't think of her name. That's done such wonderful work about shadism. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm hopefully it'll come to my frontal lobe very quickly. Mm-hmm. so I can give her her props. Mm. But, um, you know, we need to talk about that pain. Mm. I mean, there's just so many layers. And that is one of the things that we also, as a facilitator for the emotional emancipation circles, we talk about that. Mm. And as black people, we we still need to talk about that mm. um, to understand that, you know, we run the gamut. And why do we have so many different shades of brown
2: mm. from,
1: mm. you know. Right. Right. I mean the um you know they, the the thing that they used to say when when we were growing up you know we have black women that are light bright and damn near white <laughs> to the most beautiful to, to chocolate brown mm-hmm. okay so we mm-hmm. run the gamut of beauty and to be able to see the beauty in all of that and mm-hmm. we that's what makes us so rich We are so diverse Mm, in all that we do, that that richness just comes through, that we can do anything. We can adapt to anything. And that's that melanin factor Mm -hmm. that we need to embrace and educate ourselves and our children about. It's a powerful thing. Mm. And once we connect to that, it's going to be an OMG moment for Mm. the universe. Mm -hmm. I, I think also, too, for
0: people like me who came into their blackness late, <laughs> um, I, I think that it, it's important just to let people know there's never too late. Never too late. <laughs> never, never too late. Too late. And yeah. when I say come into my blackness late, because, you know, you both talk about your experience in high school. I don't think that I start actually recognizing kind of like what it meant to be a black woman until after I had a daughter. Mm. and I started. Where did you grow up? First of all,
1: let's just start. (laughs) So it,
0: it, well, I moved around a lot, but the, one of the reasons why I don't think that I ever connected it is because my mom never really prioritized it. Like to her being Muslim was first. She was like so much. So, so here's really interesting. So I always knew like my mother was very, very religious and to her, we were Muslim and that was the, 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 the most important thing. And I didn't realize how deeply that was embedded in her until um, I started a business with my husband. Uh, I guess it's been about eight, 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 five or eight years ago, um, and we went to get certified as a black business with the state of Connecticut. Mm. And she did not put black on my birth certificate. Oh. I could not prove that I was black. <laughs> The only, <laughs> the only way I was able to prove that I was black is I had to give them my kid's birth certificate because I put black on my kid's birth certificate. Oh, wow. And it was really an eye opening moment for me. But that's a really interesting. Mm. It's a really interesting mm. dynamic, which is a whole nother show about people, sure black is, Muslims who converted to Islam children, during the 19th 19...
1: to to show. Black Mus- on their birth certificate. Ooh. I put they were Balalians. Oh. Wait, what's that? But, but, y- Baraka, you probably understand. The yes. So
0: that's that. a whole nother show, Keturah, about how it's really interesting. And this is what I'm realizing. I just had this conversation with my husband the other day. Black Muslims who converted in the 1960s. Mm-hmm. It's almost they tr- like they tried to escape their blackness and the oppression that they were in mm. by becoming Muslim. So mm. once they became Muslim, mm-hmm. they just tried to completely ignore everything about being black. Mm. I'm not like I'm. I'm different now from other black folks because. I'm Muslim and it it was it's almost Like they because my husband did a, a lecture With a gentleman who Became Muslim around the same time in the 1960s And when they asked him about Being black and Muslim he said I'm Muslim right mm. and I was like that's mm. just so indicative of that mm-hmm. age range mm-hmm. and people who converted in that time it was almost like they ran to Islam to seek solace because of the oppression then yeah. all of the things that was going on but that is an entire another show and we have three minutes left so
3: yeah I mean, I think a lot uh, of like the uh, things that the <laughs> things that we do like make sense like even the s- messed up things that black people do to survive mm-hmm. blackness they make sense it's a,
0: yep, it and was it's survival. part of
3: yeah it's part of why I try to like live on a philosophy of like keeping the door open for black people like and that mm-hmm. like when you say it's never too late like i think we should have some grace and keep the door open for our people but also like not leave it too wide open so like you know people are coming in and and holding the struggle back or or, or harming Absolutely. the struggle exactly. because there are always people yeah. within our community who who want to pursue freedom in another way freedom for themselves as individuals but um, but I do think it's important to leave the door open and to stay in relationship and community with all of our people.
0: So we only have a couple of minutes left. Mm-hmm. Um, Keturah, I always ask my mm-hmm. guests to end us with 30 seconds of advice that you would give to uh, other black women about celebrating their black girl magic.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, I would say do your work. Do your healing work. And I am going to say once again new haven and if you're hearing my voice connect with the emotional emancipation healing circles you can google the community healing network and and do your work because then you will embrace just the instead in addition to the black girl magic you'll embrace the magic of being black awesome camille
3: i'm I'm writing that down you're gonna hear (laughs) from me what is um, the yes
1: what
0: is your last 30 seconds of advice?
3: Um, I would say like what's really mattered for me recently is a connection to my ancestors. And that's both my actual blood ancestors who I can identify and the folks um further back who may or may not have been related to me. Harriet Tubman, fingers crossed is actually related to me, but probably not. (laughs) Um, Harriet Tubman. Claim it girl.
1: Just claim it. (laughs) I'm going to claim that. My, my,
3: my great, great auntie Harriet. Um, but like really connecting with them, listening to like what they, I'm, I'm starting to connect with like the Cumbie river, um, uh, collectives uh, they they released a statement that's really beautiful so there's so much richness like this this movement of loving ourselves and loving our blackness is not new so you know go back and claim your ancestors listen to their voices I'm um, you know I practice ifa, yeah. so I also like actually like am in community with my ancestors whatever your level of comfort with that is what it is but um, mm-hmm. even mm-hmm. just reading the words of your ancestors can really make a difference
0: Thank you so much, ladies, for joining us. And I would like to thank everybody for listening. You've been listening to Mornings with Mubaraka, and until next week, I will remind you to go, go about your day and your week and be a voice and not an echo. Thank you.